All right, please join me in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we come to such an important event, one I'm sure that we're very familiar with, your son's coronation, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I pray, Lord, that you help me to do justice to this passage. I pray that whatever truths you desire to be revealed to your people would become evident. I do thank you for Christ. I do thank you for the revelation of him as King and Messiah as shown in these verses. And I pray we know that um, you've recorded these for important reasons. It's in all four Gospels, Lord. And so I just ask you as your vessel to speak to your people. Help us to remove any other distractions from our minds so we can be focused on you. I pray that our affection for Christ, our confidence in him as the Messiah would grow and what he's done for us. I do thank you for this passage. I do thank you for the truths found in the other Gospels, supplementing it. And uh, just pray, Lord, that you can be pleased by this time. Help us to continue to see it as a, as a furthering of the worship that began through the singing. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Does that sound echoey? Is there something for me to do about that sound, guys? Or is it something that's being adjusted? So sorry about that. So the title of this morning's sermon is Jesus' Triumphal Entry into Jerusalem. So Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, verse by verse, and we find ourselves at Luke 19, 28. George IV's coronation as king of the United Kingdom, it took place at Westminster Abbey in London on July 19, 1821. George's extravagant tastes and lifestyle greatly influenced the ceremony. It ended up costing 238,000 pounds, which would be 21 million pounds today, assuming none of us really know what a pound is worth. If you convert this to dollars, then his coronation would cost $26 million today. So you heard that correctly. King George IV's coronation would cost 24, or $26 million if it took place today. The money went toward reno renovations and furnishings for Westminster Abbey. There were costumes and uniforms, jewels and plate armor, and a coronation feast for all 4,656 guests. A dinner with 4,656 people. It proved to be the most lavish and expensive of any British monarch. It was over 20 times more expensive than the previous coronation, and no other coronation has approached this one. Now this morning, we get to see the coronation of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Any idea what it cost? <laughs> Unlike King George's coronation, there seemed to be no cost whatsoever. I mean, the owners of the donkey were willing to just give their donkey to Christ's use, so even the donkey doesn't cost anything. The coronation, like the rest of Jesus' ministry, I would say is characterized by modesty and humility. If you just think about Jesus' earthly life in general, most of the major places or people associated with him speak of humility. For example, and now you might not know this because these places are so significant to us. They, they are the locations associated with the Savior who we love. And so these locations, Bethlehem, Nazareth, they almost have a special place in our heart. But the reality is they're very modest places. You would not know anything about them. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's a no-name place. He's raised in Nazareth. That is a no-name place. He's raised by poor, no-name parents in Joseph and Mary. He ends up being baptized in the Jordan, another no-name river. If you remember when uh, Naaman was going to be cleansed of his leprosy, he was told to go dunk in the Jordan. And what did he say? It's like, I want to go to the Jordan. There's got to be way better rivers back in Syria than going to, because the Jordan was an unattractive and modest river. So pretty much everything associated with Jesus's earthly life and ministry spoke of humility and modesty. But if I had to choose one earthly event that pictured Jesus's humility better than any others, second only to the cross, it would be the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, we're going to be we're coming to the end of Jesus's earthly life. We're five days out from the crucifixion, and so most of the rest of the sermons that we're going to be looking at are going to be leading up to the cross, and so it's important for us to understand this timeline. So if you've got Resurrection Sunday, this is the Sunday before it. So this is, if the crucifixion took place on Friday, it might have taken place on Thursday, but we'll say the crucifixion was on Friday, this is five days before it. This is the Sunday before that. This is what we know as Palm Sunday because of the palm branches that the people waved, which we'll discuss 
in a moment. And so this is the Sunday that Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem to then be betrayed, arrested, and crucified. So this Sunday begins what's known as Holy Week or the Passion Week or what we just know as the last earthly week of Jesus's life. We're going to be looking at the prophecy of the, we're going to begin by looking at the prophecy of the triumphal entry. So we are going to come back to Luke, but go ahead and turn a few books to the left to Zechariah 9. So I think it'd be three books to the left. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Second to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9. And this brings us to lesson one. The triumphal entry, part one, fulfilled prophecy. The triumphal entry, part one, fulfilled prophecy. Now, just to let you know, this sermon will not have much application. I don't like it personally. I don't know if I ever told you this before when I'm listening to a preacher. I've told you I generally try to listen to a few sermons on a passage before I preach it, and I don't like it when I'm listening to a preacher, and I believe that he's forcing application into uh, where there's not really application for us, and so I don't want to do that, but because I'm not going to do that, there's just not a lot of application from this. Now, when you're going verse by verse through scripture, you reach passages that have lots of application. For example, the last two sermons were on the parable of the minus. That's what occurs in Luke 19, right before the triumphal entry. Lots of application from the parable of the minus because it's all about us being faithful stewards. It's all about what we're supposed to do. Well, the triumphal entry is all about what Jesus did. The triumphal entry, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we did or have to do. It is all about Christ and what he's done for us. And so the attention throughout this sermon is going to be almost exclusively on Christ. But if you're to rank the most important events in Jesus's earthly life or earthly ministry, then the triumphal entry would have to be toward the top of that list. And if it's important in the earthly ministry of Jesus, then it should be important for us. And so these details while perhaps not being as challenging as other passages, are still crucially important to our understanding of our Savior. Now, in Zechariah 9, we're going to look at verse 9. This is the prophecy, and we're going to break this verse up part by part. So, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So Zion is another, and we'll just pause there, so Zion's another name for Jerusalem, and obviously, O daughters of Jerusalem, brings our attention to Jerusalem. So the inhabitants of Jerusalem are told to rejoice greatly, to shout aloud, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem would be the Jews. So the Jews are told to show this great exuberance because their king is coming. Now, a coronation is a time of great celebration for any people, but it would be a particularly great time of celebration for the Jews because of, I would say, two things. Who their king is and what their king brings or does for them. Let me say that one more time. Because of who their king is and because of what their king brings or does for them, and you see it as the verse continues. It says that their king is righteous and he has salvation with him, or righteous and having salvation is he. And so this is why the Jews were to celebrate, because of who their Messiah is, righteous or just, that's his character, and because of what he brings with him. He brings salvation with him. Now, many kings, or you probably could even argue most kings throughout human history have been what? What words would you use to describe them? Are we, are we fans of most of the kings throughout human history? Probably not. Most of them have been what? Evil, Evil tyrannical, selfish, wicked, instead of serving people, using people to serve them. So Christ stands as the opposite of that. And interestingly, if there was a people who were to have a good king, or there, were, there was a people you would expect to have a good human or earthly king, it would be Israel. It would be God's people. But when they rejected the Lord and they asked for a human earthly king, if God was more like me, he would have just let them have what they wanted and let them suffer for it. 
In other words, if God was more like me and less gracious than he actually is, that's what he would have done. But God very mercifully tells the Israelites how horrible it's going to be for them if they end up getting a king, just to warn them. And so listen to what he says. Just listen for the repetition of the word take. This is in 1 Samuel 8. You probably remember the account. Israel asks Samuel for an earthly king. Samuel goes to God and says, the people have rejected me. And then God says, no, Samuel, they didn't reject you. They have rejected me. But first, before giving them an earthly king, warn them what that earthly king is going to be like. 1 Samuel 8, 11, Samuel said, the king who rules over you, he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take the tenth of your grain. He's going to take the best of your young men and your donkeys. He's going to take the tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. So God said that even Israel's earthly king was going to be a taker, and many of their kings, you see the fulfillment of this prophecy from Samuel throughout their earthly reigns. Now, they should have been rejoicing and celebrating because now they get a king that is righteous and just. Instead of being a taker, he is a giver. Instead of taking from them, he gives them the greatest gift, salvation, eternal life. But at this point, this prophecy becomes completely shocking. My suspicion is the only reason it won't sound outrageous to you is because of your familiarity with it. But if you were to read this prophecy for the very first time without any familiarity with Jesus's triumphal entry, you would be shocked by what it says in the next few words. That when the king comes, he will be humble, he will be mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now these words, they do not reconcile or harmonize with the previous part of the verse. What you would expect to read when a king comes is something like what? Behold, your king is coming what? Mightily, extravagantly, greatly, powerfully, riding on a magnificent steed, not on, not on a donkey, or it says specifically the, the colt here. So the triumphal entry, it wouldn't really look like, it's going to sound like a joyful celebration, but anyone watching would wonder what was so triumphal about it. The king himself would not look like some great victor. He's going to look like some humble servant. Now go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You don't have to mark your spot in Zechariah 9 since we've seen the prophecy. This is one of the most difficult sermons that I've put together in a long time. Because the triumphal entry has the unique distinction of being one of the few accounts in the Gospels that's in all four Gospels, right? You'll frequently see an account that, that'll be in two Gospels, maybe three Gospels, but the triumphal entry is actually in all four Gospels. Well, as I was preparing the sermon in Luke, I found myself repeatedly referencing John's Gospel, Mark or Matthew as well, but primarily John, for the details that supplement Luke's triumphal entry. And this happened so frequently throughout the sermon because it's surprising how many details are omitted from Luke's gospel that are found in John's gospel. And I'll point those out in just a moment. But so many, so many details that you, you just know them, so you almost read through Luke's gospel and miss the fact that he doesn't list those details. So because I was referencing John's gospel so many times while preparing the sermon, I thought the best thing we could do to lay a good foundation for when we turn to Luke is to look at the account in John's gospel to make sure that we see those details first. Now, John's triumphal entry is in John 12. Hopefully, you're still in John 11. Because one of the other things that's important in John's gospel is it records a major event. Now, follow me on this. This timeline, and I think this is probably God's plan for the gospels, they give us a full picture of Christ. If you only have one gospel, you're going to miss so much. And so we can get that much more out of our Bible study or out of our, of, get so much more out of our study of our Lord when we see all faces that the Gospels present. And so when we're in John's Gospel, it records a major event that 
sets the context for the triumphal entry now just follow me in this because you've been with us over these last few months as we've been looking at the events leading up to the triumphal entry now if you just use luke's gospel and hopefully you remember the sermons that i preached on these events if you used just luke's gospel this is the order of events leading up to the triumphal entry you've got jesus healing blind bartimaeus you've got jesus calling zacchaeus out of the tree and then going to zacchaeus's house then you've got jesus preaching the parable of the minas and then after the parable of the minas according to luke jesus the triumphal entry occurs but in john's gospel there's a major event between the preaching of the parable of the minas and the triumphal entry can anyone tell by john 11 looking at john 11 what event that is what's the what's the major event in john 11 dramatic ultra dramatic raises lazarus from the dead so after jesus preaches the parable of minas and luke doesn't tell us this jesus raises lazarus from the dead so in your minds i just want you to picture this the right before jesus's triumphal entry actually there's the event with um, mary and martha where where jesus is anointed but that also is preceded by raising lazarus from the dead and that's important because it's going to set the context for us for the triumphal entry when jesus raised lazarus from the dead it did two things it created terrible opposition to christ and it brought a crowd let me say that one more time when jesus raised lazarus from the dead it did two things that are important to keep in mind for the triumphal entry first it brought terrible opposition to christ and it brought a crowd so look in john 11:53. i mean this is absolutely shocking here john 11:53. this is right after jesus raised lazarus from the dead what did the religious leaders do they huh they plot his death yes <laughs> i mean can you believe that don't don't miss what you what i just said to you or what the bible just said to you jesus raised lazarus from the dead the religious leaders respond by saying we got to murder him because all these people are now being drawn further to christ They're, the religious leaders are losing more of their attention um, power probably adoration from the people they're like too many people are going to jesus we need to murder there's only one thing we can do we've got to murder him and so john 11:53 says from that day that means from the day that jesus raised lazarus lazarus they made plans to put him to death it gets even worse look at john 12 verse 9. one chapter to the right we're getting closer to the triumphal entry john 12 verse 9. who else did they want to put to death lazarus when the large crowd remember i told you there was a large crowd that gathered because of i mean what's gonna what's gonna attract the masses more than someone being raised from the dead i mean we'd go watch we'd go love to see a miracle of that proportion take place god raised someone from the dead and so you can imagine the people who flock to jesus after he does this and then it says when the large john 12 9 when the large crowd of the jews learned that jesus was there they came not only on account of him but also to see lazarus lazarus whom he had raised from the dead verse 10 the next verse so the chief priests made plans to put lazarus to death as well because on account of lazarus many of the jews were going away and believing in jesus so there was actually a conversation we don't know exactly what they said where the religious leaders got together and didn't feel bad about saying it's not enough just to murder jesus we're also going to need to murder lazarus why because there were so many people who saw lazarus after being raised and that was bringing glory to christ many are believing in jesus the religious leaders can't have that so they're like we're going to murder jesus and then we need to murder lazarus and maybe if there's other people jesus performed miracles on maybe we'll go murder the lepers that he cleansed too they didn't say that but i i would not put it past them to be willing to do that this is one of the details that's not in luke and i want you to understand and you're like well why is this so important here's why i want you to understand this you heard the scripture reading from luke we are going to turn there in a moment but do you see how jesus operated very secretly very quietly obtaining the donkey he was going to ride on did you guys catch that what you're like why 
why the mysterious approach to the triumphal entry? Why not go into the village, get the donkey, and then ride into Jerusalem on it? Instead, Jesus sends disciples to get it, tells them what to do, tells them what to say to the owners. If the owners say this, you say this, and then the owners will give you the donkey. Why all the mystery? Why, all, why everything done so quietly? Because of the opposition against Jesus. This was his way of protecting the owners. If you remember, you don't have to turn there, but not long before Lazarus was raised, the blind man in John 9 was healed. And after that, the religious leader said, if anyone confesses Christ, we're going to put him out of the synagogue. So my point is, they were in considerable danger if they helped Jesus. The owners of the donkey would be in considerable danger if it spread that they helped Jesus. So Jesus, to protect them, sends these disciples ahead to get the donkey so that their fingerprints would not be on Jesus's triumphal entry, and it really protected their lives. Now, look at John uh, 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees. This is where we get the name Palm Sunday from. And they went out to meet him. And they're waving these branches and they're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Here are two things that are not, two, two more things that are not found in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel makes no mention of the palm branches. So now you see here in John's gospel, the reference to the palm, palm branches. And then second, it says the people were saying Hosanna. And I think we know this. We know that at the triumphal entry, the people were yelling Hosanna. Luke is the only gospel that does Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John all record the people yelling Hosanna, but Luke doesn't make any mention of that, and I wanted you to see that. Hosanna is often thought of as a declaration of, of praise, like hallelujah, but Hosanna actually means save us, or deliver us, or please save us, or I, be, I beseech you to save us, or I beg you to deliver us. It was a plea for salvation. And now mark your spot in John's gospel and turn to Psalm 118. We are going to turn back to John. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 118 because I want you to see what the people were quoting. This is why they were saying what they were saying. It was drawn from Psalm 118. And this brings us to lesson two, the next, or excuse me, this brings us to part two of lesson one. The triumphal entry reveals Jesus's messiahship. The triumphal entry reveals Jesus's messiahship. Psalm 18 is a distinctly messianic psalm. It's probably most well known because of verse 22. So if you look at Psalm 18, verse 22 with me, my suspicion is it will be immediately recognizable to you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And I suspect you recognize that because there's six times that I found that this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Six times this verse is quoted regarding Jesus' um, rejection, him being the stone that the, that the builders rejected. Assuming it's Psalm 18, 22, Psalm 118, 22 is quoted six times in the New Testament, that tells me it must be one of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Now, right there in, in verse 25, save us, that's the word Hosanna. At least in Hebrew, it's the word Hosanna. In English, it's translated as, as save us. But the word Hosanna, it's drawn from two words. The Hebrew word Yasha, which means deliver or save, and the word Anna, which means beg or beseech. Combining those, Yasha and Anna, to form the word Hosanna. So literally, Hosanna, I beg you to save us. Save us. Please deliver us. And I'm going to need you to keep something in mind that you will need for the following sermons. This, I couldn't get all this in one sermon. I want, wanted to be able to do that. But you're going to have to remember this. When the Jews were crying out 
at the triumphal entry for Jesus to save them, how do they want to be saved? What do they want to be saved from? They wanted to be saved from Rome. They did not want to be saved from their sin. They did not want a spiritual savior. They wanted a physical savior. We'll talk more about that in the next sermon. But that's really important because many of the people who were worshiping at the triumphal entry, five days later are doing what? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I, I don't know that you can find a more dramatic 180 in a group than what you see between these five days where they're worshiping at the triumphal entry and calling out for Jesus' crucifixion five days later. And if you've ever wondered how that can happen or why that happened, this looks to the reason. They wanted to be saved. They expected Jesus to save them, but he did not save them the way they wanted. And in their fickleness, they're like, we don't want anything to do with him if he's not saving us physically from Rome. Now look at verse 26. Here's the verse you'll recognize from the triumphal entry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying. This is what they're calling out. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And I'll tell you something interesting. In Matthew, Mark, and John, they say this exactly. In Matthew, Mark, and John, the people say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But in Luke, which you'll see when we turn there, it says, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, why the change? Why the change from he to king? Why, the cha- why blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? My suspicion is Luke is emphasizing Jesus' kingship. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. The triumphal entry part three reveals Jesus' kingship. The triumphal entry part three reveals Jesus' kingship. And then you can turn back to John 12. Two more verses there before we go to Luke. John 12, verses 14 and 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as as it is written. And this is Zechariah 9.9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. John and Matthew both quote Zechariah 9.9 to let us know that the triumphal entry is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Um, Mark and Luke don't for some reason. In verse 14, it says, Jesus found a young donkey. Well, (laughs) that's surprising to me that that's all it says, because er, this week I studied Luke before studying John, and as you see in Luke's gospel, there was considerable effort made to obtain this donkey, sending the disciples, telling them what to say. Well, in John's gospel, it just says he found a donkey. And so this is why you can use John to fill in the holes in Luke, but you need, now we need Luke to fill in the holes in John and see how exactly Jesus found this donkey. So if you want to turn now to Luke 19... Luke 19, 28, to see how Jesus found this donkey, as John 12, 14 said. We'll go through these verses pretty quickly because they're fairly self-explanatory. Luke 19, 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going, going up to Jerusalem. It says going up to Jerusalem because Jesus is leaving Jericho, and the road from Jericho to Jerusalem was steep. My understanding, it's about 4,000 feet over 20 miles. And so Jericho was ele- or Jerusalem's elevated, so they're going up to it. And that's why when you're reading in the Old Testament, even when people travel from the north, whatever direction you travel to Jerusalem, even if you go from the north to the south, it always says you're going where? It always says you're going up because it's referring to going up in elevation. And it looks to Jerusalem serving as a picture or type of the heavenly Zion or heavenly Jerusalem that is above or that is up. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, 
Jesus sent two of the disciples. Bethphage is a small town near Bethany, which is on the southeast slope of the Mount of Olives. It's only mentioned in connection with Jesus's triumphal entry. There's nothing else about Bethphage in any of the Gospels, or anywhere else in Scripture for that matter. Verse 30, Jesus says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering it you will find a colt that is tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. So they're going to go into this village, and they're going to find this colt. And I just want you to notice the certainty with which Jesus speaks. He doesn't say, head into the village and look for a donkey until you find one, or go into the village and there might be a donkey there, maybe it'll be tied up, maybe it won't. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. It is, it is um, staggering in the detail. It is a staggering revelation of our Lord's omniscience, all of this. So just keep that in mind for a lesson that's coming up. He tells them that this is what they, you will find this there. Now, there seem to be two possible reasons it says nobody rode the donkey before. You see that? It says no one has ever sat on it. This is a donkey nobody has sat on it before. Why do we get these types of details? Well, there's probably two possibilities, and I'll tell you both of them. And it could be either of these possibilities, or maybe it's neither of them, because we don't know certainly. But one reason that we're told, or one possible reason we're told that nobody rode on this donkey is if nobody rode on it, it's not tamed. This would not be a donkey that people can ride on, yet it's going to be the donkey that Jesus rides on without throwing him off, if donkeys do that. It definitely wouldn't be an easy one to ride if nobody had broken it before. And so one reason we could be told this is it shows Christ's sovereignty over all of creation, including even the animal kingdom. The other possible reason that it could say nobody rode on the donkey before was because it seems to be a theme, and this is what I lean toward, that things that are new or unused are considered more sacred, or there's almost like a greater holiness or separation associated with those things that are unused. And I'll just give you a few examples. Numbers 19.2, tell the people of Israel to bring you a heifer on which a yoke has never come. It's never been yoked before, and that's going to allow the heifer the red heifer to be holier, more sacred, more set apart. Deuteronomy 21.3, take a heifer that's never been worked and has not been pulled by a yoke. If you remember when the Philistines returned the ark, 1 Samuel 6.7, they said, prepare a new cart, two milk cows, which there's, so have a new cart and also have two cows which have never come under a yoke before. The tomb Jesus' body was laid in. How many bodies had previously been laid in this tomb? right? None. They took Jesus' body down, wrapped it in a linen shroud. This is Luke 23, 53. Laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid before. So it seems to be a theme in scripture that when something's new or hasn't been used, it looks more sacred or set apart for the Lord. And that could be why it says nobody's rode on this donkey. Then verse 31, Jesus says, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? And I take this more to mean when they ask you, because Jesus knew they were going to ask this. And we, we will use the word if that way, right? We'll say, like if you know your spouse is going to the store, you say, if you're going to the store, would you buy this for me? You're not really wondering whether they're going. You know they're going. We just speak that way. And so don't, I don't want you to miss Christ's omniscience and think he's really wondering or didn't know if this was going to happen. Essentially, he says, when they ask you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And this prevents the disciples from looking like they're doing what with the donkey? <laughs> Stealing it, exactly. Verse 32, so those who were sent away, excuse me, so those who were sent went away. They found the donkey just as Jesus had told them. Verse 33, and as they were untying the colt, I'm going to keep referring to it as a donkey because that's how it's identified in other gospels and Zechariah 9 refers to it as a donkey. The owner said to them, why are you untying the colt or donkey? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So their objections just quickly vanished as soon as they learned that the Lord needed their donkey. I don't think this account has a ton of application as I've already shared, but this would be one part that challenged me, and this brings us to lesson two. We will come back to lesson one, but this brings us to lesson two. We should be willing to give up whatever the Lord needs. 
Lesson two, we should be willing to give up whatever the Lord needs. Now, I confess this is a little speculative on my part to say this, but it stood out to me that they said the Lord has need of it versus Jesus has need of it. You would say, and they didn't say a Lord, because Lord is a common title in Jesus' day. They said the Lord, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings has need of this. For them to talk to the owners this way leads me to believe that Jesus was more than just Jesus to them. He was also Lord. He, they were disciples or they were believers. And so the disciples approach the owners of the donkey this way and say, the Lord has need of it. And that seemed to be enough to move them to give this donkey for his use. Now, most people in the ancient world were poor. Give, uh, if I had to think of something in our day to equate a donkey with, it'd probably be like a vehicle. Well, where we have multiple vehicles, my suspicion is most people in the ancient world did not have multiple donkeys. It was no small thing, is my point, to give up a donkey like this. But the moment that these people learn that the Lord has need of this donkey, that seemed to be enough to alleviate any concern in their minds, and then they quickly, willingly just give up this donkey for Christ's use. Now, hopefully, if we thought that there was something the Lord needed from us, we would respond as quickly and willingly as they did. That's something that I found challenging, was I considered if I learned that the Lord needed something from me, would I that quickly or that willingly give it up, even if it was something of great significance or substance? So let's ask ourselves, is there anything in our lives that we believe the Lord would have us give up for his service? And it doesn't even have to be a possession. It could be time, although you could argue that time is one of our most valuable possessions. But I mean, it doesn't have to be a material possession. Would the Lord have us give up more time for him? Is there something you feel convicted the Lord wants you to do, and you're resisting that conviction? You know that the Lord wants you to commit more time to this, but you're not willing to give that up for him yet. Could the Lord want us to give more energy for him? Could the Lord want us to give more money for him? Give to some need, give in a greater way to the church, or give to some missionary that's been on your heart. Could it be something we've been using selfishly that the Lord wants us to give up for his glory? It's not necessarily something immoral or sinful. It's just something like, let's say your house. I don't know if you ever thought about this before, but your house, your vehicle, is not really your house and your vehicle. It's a stewardship. God expects you to use these resources or tools for his glory. And so if you have a house or you have a vehicle or whatever it is you have, I guarantee God wants you to be using that for his kingdom. And so is there a possession that the Lord would say, I have need of it in that sense to be used for me, and he would convict us to do so? Or could it be in a now house, vehicle, amoral, but being able to be used in moral or immoral ways? But maybe there is something that is immoral. Maybe there's some sin. Maybe there's some possession. Maybe there's some hobby you're engaged in, and it actually is immoral, and the Lord would want you to give that up for him. Would we give up these things as willingly or as quickly for the Lord as we see the owners of this donkey doing now, my hope for each of us, myself included, is that if there was something the Lord wanted us to give up for him, we could do so this willingly. Now, Jesus tells the disciples exactly what's going to happen. He says, go into the village. Right when you enter, you'll find this donkey. It's going to be tied up. Untie it. Bring it to me. When you're asked what you're doing, when you just go up and start untying a donkey that belongs to some people, just tell them, I have need of it, and then they'll give you the donkey. And so down to the exact detail of what transpires. And this is a staggering demonstration of our Lord's omniscience, his all-understanding nature. And this brings us to the last part of lesson one. The triumphal entry part four reveals Jesus's omniscience. The triumphal entry part four reveals Jesus's omniscience. There are different examples of Jesus' omniscience in the Gospels, just to give you a few of them. Omniscience means all-knowing. So his omniscience refers to him knowing everything that's happening or all that's 
going on. A few examples. Do you remember when Jesus wanted to pay the temple tax, even though he didn't have to pay it because the king's son doesn't pay taxes and he's the king's son, but to prevent an offense, he's going to pay the temple tax. And where does he tell the disciples they can get the coin? Yeah, from a fish. Matthew 17, 27, go to the sea, cast in a hook, take the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take it and give it for me and for yourself. That's omniscience. He knew there'd be a coin in this fish's mouth. When Jesus met Nathaniel, do you remember where he told Nathaniel that he saw him? Under the fig tree, John 1, 48, Nathaniel said, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you there. Jesus didn't need people to tell him about others because he knew everyone. John 2, 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. All of the predictions of Jesus's betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, flogging, and resurrection are all manifestations or examples of his omniscience. He knew he would be betrayed. He even knew who, who would betray him. Something completely shocking to me. He knew who would betray him, and he still chose that individual to be one of his disciples, right? He chose Judas knowing Judas would betray him, even telling Judas at the end, go out and do quickly what you have in your heart to do to further the plan of redemption so Christ could go to the cross to die for us. All this according to his omniscience, nothing taking him by surprise, never wondering what's going to happen, never waiting to see how things unfold, knowing all of the details as he carries out his father's will or plan for his life. Mark 10, 33. We're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest, scribe. They're going to condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles, down to the exact detail of what was going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem, yet he had set his face to Jerusalem back in Luke 9 and has been on that path, all of these chapters in Luke, between Luke 9 and Luke 19. We see a similar example. Let me show you one more similar example of Jesus' omniscience a few chapters later. Turn to Luke 22. I'll go through this quickly. Notice how much this looks like what we're seeing in Luke 19. Jesus tells the disciples to prepare the Passover feast. So in Luke 22, look at verse 8. Jesus sent Peter and John, and he said, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, now notice this, the detail here, his omniscience again, just like with the donkey. When you've entered the city, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water who will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. Tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? He tells him exactly what the man's going to say, what they're supposed to say to him. Where is the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. He'll show you. This is what he'll do next. He'll show you a large upper room that's furnished. Prepare it there. They went and they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover, unfolded exactly like our Lord said it would. Incredible omniscience. We see Jesus orchestrating this event in such perfect detail to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, fulfilling all of the prophecies associated with his life perfectly, not missing one detail of any of them. Now turn back to Luke 19. Turn back to Luke 19 to see what happens after this. Verse 35. And they brought it, they brought the donkey to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, on the back of the colt, it served somewhat like a saddle, the cloaks did for Jesus. They set Jesus on it. Verse 36, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So first they put their cloaks on the back of the donkey. Once Jesus is sitting on the donkey, now they're still putting cloaks down this time on the road for Jesus to walk on, or for the donkey to walk on while he rides on the donkey and continues from Bethany toward Jerusalem. Verse 37, as Jesus was drawing near, this means near to Jerusalem, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So they're praising God 
for the mighty works that they had seen. And I suspect that's referring largely to Lazarus being raised from the dead, but also the other miracles we've talked about, healing blind Bartimaeus. If you remember when Bartimaeus was a beggar on the side of the road, when Jesus is traveling with this huge crowd, probably thousands of people present, Jesus holds up the crowd to heal Bartimaeus. All of these people see that. They have that in mind probably when Jesus cleansed the, the lepers. So the question is, why did they praise God? Notice that. They're rejoicing and praising God versus praising Jesus. Jesus is the one who performed the miracles, so why aren't they praising him? Well, my suspicion is they recognize that Jesus was God's Messiah, so they praised God for sending Jesus to them to do these things. Remember, they were shouting, save us. That's what they want. They're looking for a salvation from Rome. And in their minds, anyone who can raise someone from the dead, anyone who can heal blindness, anyone who can cleanse leprosy, anyone who can feed thousands with a few fish and loaves is going to be able to overthrow Rome for us. And so they're thrilled. That's why they're rejoicing. That's why they're celebrating. That's why they're praising God, because they're finally going to be delivered from Roman oppression. So they think. Now, our last verse for this morning, verse 38, they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So this is Psalm 118, 26. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But if you remember when we read Psalm 18, 1, Psalm 118, 26, I told you that instead of saying blessed is the king, they say blessed is he Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Luke, probably emphasizing Jesus' kingship, or wanting to do so, says, blessed is the king who comes. And then they added this part. And I want you to notice this. The second half of verse 38. The people added, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this brings us to our last lesson. Jesus, lesson three, Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. Lesson three, Jesus came to bring peace between God and man. If you, if you understand this lesson, which is to say, if you understand what Jesus is going to do, which is to say, if you understand what Jesus is not going to do, deliver them from Rome, deliver them from sin instead, then you'll understand why so many Jews were thrilled at this moment, but so furious with Jesus later or thought so greatly of Jesus now, but felt betrayed more than likely by him later. Because it says here, peace in heaven. Okay, now, just follow me on this. Considering that Jesus is entering the earthly Jerusalem, the earthly Zion, not the heavenly Zion, not the heavenly Jerusalem, where would you expect it to say that Jesus is bringing peace? Peace on earth, which we know from the birth account, right? When the angel says, peace on earth, goodwill to all men. But right here, it says peace in heaven. Jesus is going to go sit on David's throne, is what they believe. So it would seem like the declaration would be peace on earth, but it's about peace in heaven because Christ did not come to establish peace among all men. In fact, elsewhere, Jesus said, I came to bring a, he said, yeah, do not think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Because of the Jews' rejection of Christ, their blood is going to be on them. And in fact, I thought it was providential, and you might just think about this, and you might even read the next few verses to prepare for the next sermon. I haven't worked this out fully, but I, I believe God has providentially, considering the conflict in the Middle East, the horrors that are being committed there, brought us providentially to these verses where we see the Jews reject their Messiah and Jesus tell them that they have rejected the peace they could have had. The Jews were told that they rejected the peace that they could have. We see part of that fulfillment in 70 AD when Rome overthrows Jerusalem, and we have seen that prophecy continue to be fulfilled even to our day with that conflict that is going on in the Middle East and will continue until the Messiah returns, Jesus' second coming, and the Jews, in the language of, I think it's Zechariah 12, 10, look on him whom they have pierced and mourn as a parent mourns for an only child. 
Until that moment, that conflict will remain in the Middle East. There will be no peace. We'll probably talk more about that in the next sermon. But right here, Jesus, we're told through Luke that it's about Jesus bringing peace in heaven between God and man. Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to reconcile men to God by his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus did not go into Jerusalem to reconcile man and man. He went into Jerusalem to reconcile man to God. Romans 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. We rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to himself. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to the world to himself. That's the peace in heaven that's established between God and man. Our sin created an infinite chasm of separation between us and a perfectly holy and perfectly just God. How could that separation be so great? Because even one sin disqualifies us from heaven. Even one. I mean, if only one, and how many sins we've committed, how separated we must be from God because he's holy, because he's perfect. We're so far removed from him that nothing we could ever do in our own effort could fix this separation. That's to say no amount of church attendance, no works we could do, no number of orphanages we could start, no amount of money we could give, no communion, no baptism, no works could ever reconcile us to God. But what we could not do, no matter how hard we try, Jesus did for us on the cross. Romans 8, 3, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So it was not possible for us to be reconciled to God, but God loved us enough to send his son to be the sacrifice for our sins so we could be reconciled to him. This is the peace Jesus brought in his first coming, and it's made clear at the triumphal entry. If you have any questions or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be out front after service and I consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for giving him for our sin. We thank you that he's the Messiah. We thank you that he's the King of Kings. We, I thank you that we've reached this point in Luke where we're approaching the cross and we still have so much to learn about Christ in this last week of his earthly life. Lord, give us affection for him. I thank you that you are willing to give him and that he was willing to be given and sacrificed for us. Strengthen our faith, Lord. I pray for any unbelievers who have joined us that today would be the day of salvation for them. You'd grant them repentance and faith in Christ. And for those of us who are believers, help us to grow closer to Christ throughout our week during our time with him in prayer and in your word and in fellowship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.